Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. Greetings, gentlemen. It's good to see you. Good to see you. I wanted to start this conversation that is very, it can be, it can be heavy as we're going into part two of talking about death and dying and dying well. I'd like to start us off on a bit of a lighthearted note. So as a quote from one of at least Stan and I's mutually favorite movies, it just so happens that your friend is only mostly dead. <laughs> mostly no. dead. There's a big difference between big being difference. all dead and mostly dead. <laughs> mostly dead is slightly alive. All dead. Well, there's only one thing you can do. Go through his pockets and look for loose change. <laughs> <laughs> the Princess Bride. The Princess Bride. Very good. We are going to talk about what do we do when we're trying to evaluate whether someone is alive or if someone is dead. And you both wrote an article some years ago, and you opened by suggesting that there was a growing interest in end-of-life ethics in previous decades. I'm curious, as you've been thinking about this topic over the past several decades, what changes have you noticed, changes that have moved the conversation either forward or backward? Well, as far as I can see, there has been a pretty steady movement toward two directions. And the first would be, as Stan mentioned last time, towards an increasingly functionalist view of a human person, such that if uh, their functions cease or reach a certain level of deterioration, uh, then they are no, they no longer either count as persons or uh, they don't have the quality of life that justifies their continued existence. Now, what's tricky about that is a lot of things, but I mean, which functions? Mm -hmm. uh, what if you've got some that are good and the rest and you know, a few that are, you know, dialysis? Is that so that's that's a that's a problem. And the second problem is that uh, this kind of turns death into a process rather than an event. And a lot of people are comfortable with that, but I'm not. It's a process because take take any ability. Uh, that ability can begin to deteriorate gradually over a period of time. So you don't just lose function. You enter a process of losing function uh, piece by piece, uh, unless you're in a car accident or something of that sort. So the difficulty then becomes, uh, where is the cutoff point? How many functions do you need to have reached that cutoff point? Or maybe which functions need to reach that cutoff point? So the functionalist view is continuing to gain steam, and it's really in keeping with the general cultural uh, disvaluation of life, of human life. Mm -hmm. And so that's number one. Number two, I think there is also a movement uh, more and more toward what I would consider to be a Cartesian view of the person versus a more Aristotelian or Thomistic Aquinas view. 
not that people actually believe in the soul, uh, but those are uh, in the background of selecting your criterion for death. And a Cartesian criterion has kind of won the day over what I would consider to be a more Thomistic criterion. Mm. This would be a great time to make that distinction. And you, in this article, both of you made the distinction between Aquinas's view, Descartes' view, and then Locke's view on the human person and the number of dimensions. So would you, would you give us those maybe in that order would be helpful? Yeah, let me just make it simple and distinguish between the Thomistic and the Cartesian views, which really, Mm -hmm. I think, uh, give us the best lay of the land. When we say the Cartesian view, it's simply the, the, the view of the soul and its relationship to the body that would come from the writings of René Descartes, an Enlightenment philosopher who actually draws heavily, heavily upon Plato. So this would be a very uh, platonic notion as well. And for reasons grounded in Plato, Descartes had the idea that the soul is in the body, kind of like waters in a glass. So yes, the body, quote unquote, contains a soul, but it's a very superficial relationship. It doesn't change the soul at all being in body, just like Water being in a glass or out of a glass doesn't change the, the, the glass or the water. It's just they happen to be sort of somehow next to each other. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and in that case, what happens in the body has no effect on the soul. And what happens in the soul has no effect in the body. So when you talk about then end of life ethics and even when the end of life is, the, the, the body could care less whether there's a soul or present or not. The body is just kind of a machine that runs. And you know, there might be a quote unquote ghost in the machine for a while, a soul, but you know, it might not be there and it doesn't really make any difference to what the body is doing. It's just mm-hmm. kind of ticking along or just stops ticking along again, functionally uh, defined there by what life is. Well, the Thomistic view coming from the, the thought of Thomas Aquinas, which uh, from which he draws heavily on Aristotle is that no, there's a really deep relationship between the soul and the body. It's not like water in a glass. It's, it's, like, it's like a marriage where what one partner does has a deep effect on the other. And in fact, it's much, much deeper than that. So that there's this causal connection. What happens in the body affects the soul. What happens in the soul affects the body. And most importantly to this conversation, the fact that the body is, is functioning at all is because it's ensouled. The soul is what makes it run. It's not a machine running on its own, like Descartes would have said, but it runs only because it's animated. We talked about this last time by it animus, which is a Greek word for soul. It's in sold. And because it's in sold, it actually functions. So on that view, death is the event of the soul leaving the body. Uh, and all those implications follow and are unpacked in that article uh, you're referring to. But that's mm-hmm. the big picture difference, whether it's water in a glass, a la Descartes, or it's a deep marital relationship, a la Aquinas. Mm-hmm. JP, you want to fill it out? Yeah, that was great. Uh, and so uh, carrying this forward now, uh, the Cartesian view basically says the only thing the soul does is possess consciousness. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it has thoughts and beliefs and sensations and experiences and so on. 
the body as Stan said is a purely material object uh, you call it a machine uh it, it's to it's totally physical so that then however you define define what death is even if you say death is the soul leaving the body most don't believe in a soul at all but they do believe that in some sense the brain's conscious all right so let's if if the brain loses its ability i'm talking now about the general secular view here yeah i, I want to clarify that a lot of us believe there is a soul and for good reason but the broad secular view would deny that mm -hmm. that's right so on their view it's the brain that's conscious not the self or the mind or soul so so when the brain loses its ability to have consciousness say if you have a person that has severe alzheimer's or somebody that's in a coma or a persistent vegetative state the one that some people say that they're they still have kind of a an awareness of what's happening but they've lost a lot of their conscious functioning then the person is considered dead and this is called a higher brain criterion because conscious activity which i do believe takes place in the soul still while we're in the body is dependent on the brain and the visual organs and others for for the soul to have sensory experiences so when the brain stops working in various ways the soul doesn't have the tools it needs to function if it's in the body. Now, if you leave the body and go into the afterlife, all bets are off. So what happens then is it tends to be what's called the higher part of the brain, uh, the frontal lobe and other, and other parts as opposed to the, the, the base brain or the limbic system, which, which tends to be more, we share more in common, <clears throat> excuse me, with the animals. Then if the higher brain functioning stops because you are losing conscious ability you're considered to be dead even though your body is still alive mm. now the the thomist wants to say that the soul is not only responsible for consciousness but for the life of the body so that if the soul were not in the body the body would no longer be a body, it would be a corpse. That means that a soul is present just in case the body is still living. That is, it has systems, not all of them maybe, that are functioning on their own and are not simply being entirely moved by external machines now obviously jordan it doesn't have to be all the systems because people mm -hmm. can have kidney failure or something else in those systems but they're still the circulation system for example mm -hmm. is still functioning on its own or other systems so if there's evidence that there are systems in that body on the table even though the person has lost the ability to be conscious uh, for the Thomas, the person is still there because the the person's is the soul soul which which gives life to the body. And if there are self-moving systems that aren't being sustained externally, then life is present 
and the body is still ensouled. So that's the difference. The Cartesian view would identify consciousness as the key when that's lost with the higher brain not functioning, the person's gone. And the Thomistic view would take more of an organic functioning criterion. Yeah, that makes sense. And does that divide well along the lines of what we talked about in our last episode with a functional definition of life and an ontological definition of life? Not really. Not really. Okay. But it does in one the, a functionalist definition of life is highly likely to go with the higher brain criterion. Okay. Because the functions that are probably going to count most mm-hmm. are those that enable us to have conscious experiences, thought even higher ones like thoughts and so on. So yeah, functionals are probably going to line up with the higher brain criterion. But uh, from that point on, it's 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 really hard to tell because if you are a Cartesian dualist and believe in a soul, then you have an ontological view of the person, but you're still going to use a higher brain criterion because consciousness, the loss of consciousness would indicate the loss of the soul. Mm-hmm. And then the Thomist is is with it takes the whole body organic criterion is going to be an an ontological view. Mm -hmm. So Descartes an ontological view, but he may take the brain criterion like the functionalist does. So I see. Thank you. That's really helpful. But I do at risk of sounding like a broken record. And I think this can be, well, I know this can be said every time we talk about something, but this is just another illustration of why it's important to order our questions appropriately. And uh, you're asking the lead or primary or prior question, what are we? Because understanding what we are and the relationship of the different elements, such as a soul and a body, is logically prior to all these questions about, uh, therefore, what is life? What is death? When, uh, when are certain interventions appropriate and not appropriate? All of those are secondary and tertiary to this primary question. Mm-hmm. It has been interesting in the past, probably since around the time that you wrote this article, there has been a lot of really interesting research about the different ways that the body regulates itself. So for instance, your gut biome is kind of its own thing, and it can even communicate with other people's gut biomes. And we don't exactly know how yet, but we know that happens or the heart sets its own rhythm. So if you would have a transplant recipient, for instance, of a heart that is a female heart into a male body, the rhythm that the heart would keep would be a female rhythm, which is just astonishing. Those kinds of things, there are plenty more examples, but those kinds of things really speak to how the soul pulls things into unity and it's not it's not as simple as well you've got a brain and you've got a body there's so much there that the soul is pulling into unity and animating that makes it more interesting well you're you're really right about that you're spot on in fact in my view when scientists are able to put a brain of a of a person into let's say, a sustained 
corpse of another person, I believe that when that brain is put in and the person is revived, who is going to be there will be the person who had the body, not the person with the brain. In other words, the person doesn't go with the brain. The person stays with the body. So Bill's brain goes into to Jim's body that without a brain and wakes up and, and the person's going to be Jim. And he'll have Jim's habits and behaviors and all that. And, 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 you know, Bill's out of there, but uh, I, I, I'm not going to stake my, my view of the person on that, but that's, that's just a prediction I've got. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But uh, I, I think it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, on, on that, if I could comment, that would that would follow more strongly uh, from the Thomistic view. It, it's like this, uh, JP. When I was finishing uh, my work under you, I uh, came over to your house and we had a project. We put a door a knocker on your door, if you remember, and uh, and I brought my tools. But uh, let's say I was uh, I was working on it with you when I was working on it with you. My drill broke. Now, I would have asked you for a drill. You would have gone and got your drill out of your toolbox, brought it to me, and uh, you know, I would have used that drill. Uh, the, the, the fact is, it's still me who's doing the work. Uh, it was still me who was putting the door knocker on the door. I just was now using a different tool to get it done, a different tool to reach the end of actually having the door knocker on the door. So just like the mind and the brain, a different brain could be used by the same mind to get the job done, namely acting in the world or, or, or having a thought about something or choosing something. Now, let me apply what Stan said to this heart thing. If the Thomistic view is right, then that heart is a heart only as long as it is playing a, a real role in that body as determined by this, but the blueprint of the soul that formed the body. And so that heart gets its identity from the soul of the, of the person that, that formed that heart. So now here's what happens. Over time, that heart begins to develop dispositions that are in it. In other words, tendencies to beat in certain ways or, you know, so for example, let's suppose that the person starts off being really anxious. Then, then on the occasion of certain events, that that, that person's heart's going to start anticipating danger and start beating. But suppose that they go through some spiritual exercises and counseling and so on, and they 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 come to where they're not as afraid anymore, and the heart muscle begins to lose those tendencies to start beating real fast. Well, at that point, then, uh, the heart will probably remain calm uh, because it has been retrained while in that person's body. So now in the, in the transplant, what happens is that when the heart is taken out of the body, it is literally no longer a heart. It's a slab of meat. And that will become evident if you left it on the table for three or four days, because it would begin to disintegrate into parts, into its atomic parts. But it's it's not a heart. But when it gets 
plugged into the circulatory system of this new person, it becomes a heart again. Now, here's the, here's the trick. It is now subsumed under the, the form of the soul of this new person. But that meat had dispositions in it that when it is subsumed under a new person, those dispositions are still there. They're reactivated as living dispositions, and it's hard for them to go away. You could retrain them. But so that even though a woman's heart is placed in a man's body, and that it will be the man's soul now that integrates that heart into being a functional entity in the body, there are still dispositions that that object had from being in the woman that will naturally function unless they are rewired through intentional activity or practices or something like that. Mm-hmm. So that that's an interesting way to understand that from a Thomistic point of view. Yeah, it's it really is fascinating. Oh, it is. And and to think about what medicine can do and what science can do. I should say what people can do using medicine and science. It's probably more accurate. The the outcomes there really do require us to think critically about what a human is. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. If you are like most of our listeners, you are concerned about the ideas being promoted in our universities today. We too often hear about what is false and even harmful being promoted as true. Christian professors are called to stand up for what is true, good, and just, and teach their students to do the same. Help equip Christian professors to do so at www. Global-scholars.org. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. And now, back to Thinking Christianly. Let me make another point. This might be too much in the weeds, uh, but I want to make sure that uh, it's clear what view I'm advancing. Uh, JP, I know you hold this view as well, because there is a nuance here. Mm -hmm. When, When I speak of the Thomistic view, there are some who would argue that view is most properly identified as we are actually a composite. So we are a soul body composite, these two things making the one. And the view I am advancing is a little different in that, no, I I am not a composite. I am a soul that has a body, though the body is integral to, to what I am, yet I can still lose it in be myself. <laughs> I can be disembodied, as the scriptures say, I will be for a period of time before the final resurrection and still be me. That's the important difference and nuance from a purely quote-unquote Thomistic view, which would see me as a composite. And when there is no longer a composite, I no longer exist. So when the body dies, the composite ceases to be, and I cease to be on that view. 
uh, where in the view that's being advanced here, ultimately I'm a soul that has a body, but doing everything possible to communicate how deep and important and intrinsically related that body is to, to me as a soul. Mm-hmm. JP, you want to, might want to nuance that even more or yeah, no, yeah. clarify uh, or correct something I've just said from your perspective. Nothing to correct, just add something. So, I mean, when the Apostle Peter died, he did not ex- continue to exist, but his soul did. And the idea is, because he was the composite of body and soul, and without one of those members of the composite, the composite doesn't exist, like Stan said. So, but the soul keeps existing. And so what continues is Peter's soul. Now, there's eventually going to be a resurrection uh, where Peter's soul will be re-embodied. And when it's re-embodied, somehow his soul was near enough to being Peter that it was able to sustain his identity somehow so that when it's re-embodied, it is literally Peter and not just Peter's soul that exists. Uh, the that's an attempt to preserve enough of Peter uh, mm-hmm. so that in the after when he's reembodied, it'll be he. But I I'm not quite sure how that works because A's identity to B is an all or nothing kind of thing. You can't be like 90% identical to something and it counts. Mm-hmm. So if it if Peter's soul is not identical to Peter, it it is a little difficult. Now, that's not the only way that they deal with it, but that's been the main way historically that the mm-hmm. afterlife has been dealt with on this view. Mm-hmm. And when you're referring to the afterlife, or Stan, you called it the intermediate state. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Sure. I simply mean the period after we die, our bodies in the grave or cremated, but we continue to exist. We're in that state that that the thief on the cross would be soon when Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. His body wasn't going to be with Jesus, but he was with Jesus. Uh, And that lasts for a period of time until the final resurrection, which we know happens at the end of the age. And we receive our bodies back and live embodied for uh, for forevermore. But there is that intermediate period between our life embodied here on earth on this earth and our embodied life in the new heavens and new earth. That's the intermediate state when we exist, but we exist disembodied. Yeah. Yeah, And so I just want to reiterate that this might be a nuance. It might be too much in the weeds, but uh, it's important to think about some of these nuances and to have a well thought out anthropology view of what we are, because all of these questions of metaphysics are going to then come into play in questions of ethics and how we mm-hmm. how we live. And I, I have shared on an earlier podcast, and I'll mention again, I did work with JP on that paper in uh, the early 90s and really was helpful to think through end-of-life ethics issues. And then uh, about 15 years later, I had to face that uh, very issue with my daughter as she was um, in a intensive care in a uh, – state where we had to make some end of life decisions Mm -hmm. and it was very very not only helpful but reassuring to know that yeah there there are reasons 
that support making decisions in this. It's not just a guess that there, uh, there are people who have thought about this and I've been able to read and think through and JP helped me uh, during my studies with him to think these things through things through that then became very, very practical uh, mm-hmm. when you get into those kind of situations where you've got to make decisions and you've got to have some basis for those decisions. Mm-hmm. I'm so Absolutely. sorry you yeah. experienced yeah. that, Stan. Yeah, I am too, Stan. Mm-hmm. That's hard stuff. Mm-hmm. As you encountered that situation, what kind of questions were you asking as you evaluated your decision? Well, I was asking, is my daughter alive? Mm-hmm. Uh, she was on um, a lot of machinery that was causing breathing and heart pumping and everything else, but uh, uh, it wasn't clear that she was still with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I had to think through what, what, what is life? How would one determine that? Uh, and when might it be appropriate based on those things to with withdraw life support? If I may just uh, make an observation about how Stan a- approached this, aside from just the just the heartbreak and trauma of, of losing a child, it's it strikes me as being odd that he actually thought about it and tried to think about it well, because people today have lost the value and accordingly the practice of thinking well about the decisions they make. Stan, I just am uh, impressed that you tried to honor Christ and your and your daughter and family by doing your best to reach a the wisest decision possible mm-hmm. and you didn't just let your emotions guide your decision and i my hat's off to you for that mm-hmm. yeah, well and i will mention of course it was a joint decision my wife was there i was able to share some of what i had learned as it applied to this was helpful to her as well because she was trying to think this through also and make sense of what was going on and the implications of different choices we might make. And uh, again, these things were very helpful for her to to have in mind as she, uh, with me together, were on this journey and making these these choices. You will sometimes talk about her, and you usually use active tense. Mm-hmm. My daughter is. Absolutely. Tell me more about that. Well, it's, it's, it's a way to voice my theology and philosophy of death, that she has not died, her body has died, and uh, she is in a disembodied state now, but uh, is very much alive. <laughs> in fact, uh, there's a great quote by Billy Graham. Uh, he said, not long before he passed away, he said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. <laughs> right? Oh, my gosh. Oh, do I like that? Yeah. I like so that. people oh. ask me how old my children are. And I start with Beth, who passed away. It'll be 10 years this spring. You know, she's um, she's 33. Passed away. Uh, about 23. So she is 33. She's just uh, only had 23 of those years in a body. I love that, brother. Uh, and it's true. 
It's mm-hmm. absolutely true. Absolutely true. Yeah. In fact, my <laughs> wife found a way early on to answer the question, uh, what is your what do your children do? And when referring to Beth, she said, Well, she's a dancer. Mm. And just leaves it, leaves it at that. And if somebody asks her more, she says, Yes, she's dancing on streets of gold these days. Uh, oh my gosh. Stan, unbelievable. That's beautiful. Literally unbelievable. I love it. I well just, that's, done, Lori. That's great. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a great encouragement that we we have this hope that death is not the end for us. Yeah, and and it's important, and I, and I know that you'd agree with this. It's important to say that it is not just a hope. It's something that we actually can know. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that we don't might not still have doubts or questions, but knowledge in this case would be a true belief that's based on adequate grounds and uh, and the grounds for a real life after death from uh the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and from myriads of carefully examined near death accounts that are impossible to explain physiologically it just it becomes in from the study i've done Mm -hmm. it would be foolish for me not to believe in heaven and hell and and in fact i have tried i for the fun of it i tried to make myself not believe in those and i couldn't do it Because I know they're real. And uh, as a result, it is, as you said, an absolutely staggering hope. I, I, I can't think of any hope that's greater than this. I mean, it's just so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Changes the way you live your daily life. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. And let me say this. Uh, I, I went through a period beginning with Beth's passing in 2013, uh, over about four years, where I lost four people very close to me, three relatives and a and a mentor of mine. Uh, a few years later, my mother-in-law passed away in a car accident. Uh, shortly uh, thereafter, Jim Sire passed away, who'd been a mentor uh, of mine for many years. And then, um, and then my father passed away. And uh, I just realized after his passing that, you know, we have passed, we, my wife and I, from the season of saying hello, making new friendships, meeting new people, uh, to the season of saying goodbye. Just a lot of saying goodbye. uh, And it's continued. And uh, I actually wrote a little bit about this, about the art of saying goodbye, and tried to identify some principles that I was learning on that journey. I'm still on it and still continue to learn, but uh, there is an art to saying goodbye well. And it starts, by the way, well before we have to say goodbye mm-hmm. with how we live and how we live in relationship to the others that we will at someday either say goodbye to or will say goodbye to us. Mm-hmm. But I think there's an art to living that has to do with the art of both dying and, and saying goodbye to those we love or know that will go before us. Mm-hmm. It really puts into perspective why Christ asks us to treat other people in a certain way, why he models that for us, why he shows us, because we we have a short amount of time and to make use of that in a way that most glorifies God. It makes our, our ordinary days a lot more meaningful to think of them like that. 
Well, Thomas Akempis, who wrote uh, The Imitation of Christ, made the statement, and this is almost a quote, he said, it would be sad for a person who wants to live long, who never gives any attention to learning how to live well. Mm-hmm. And I think that's got a, a, there's a lot of good wisdom in that, in that statement. Mm-hmm. One of the causes of the explosion of anxiety in the last 30 to 40 years in America, and, and you can read the statistics, and they're now at the highest point they've ever been, has been a loss of hope in the meaningfulness of life and life after death. And with those off the table, all a person has to live for is the immediate satisfaction of their desires. You may say, well, they could still live for their family and so on. But but that's an infinite regress, mm-hmm. because then why do your family live? Well, they live for their family. And so that mm-hmm. goes nowhere. But even if people do that, as I've lived 74 years, I see people deep down really living to satisfy their own needs and desires. And that leads to addiction uh, because mm-hmm. it becomes, as as we've gone on, the ability to defer gratification of that satisfaction is getting a less and less in the population. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out the way it's played out in American culture is without objective meaning that can be known and without uh, life after death. People are living for their 15 minutes of fame, uh, for immediate gratification, and that's what addictions are all about, Mm -hmm. because you have to have more of the Turkish delight to get the same buzz. Mm -hmm. And uh, that shows, I think, those who are watching us, how an incredible connection can be made with kind of relatively abstract ideas, you know, what's the purpose of life and people laugh at that question mm-hmm. or or is there life after death with mm-hmm. addictions day-to-day difficulties in life mm-hmm. and what that shows is that ideas really do matter and we are largely at the mercy of our ideas as mm-hmm. Dallas Willard put it yeah mm-hmm. I was just thinking of um, his work when you were speaking because it seems that as we have this very embodied human experience the way that Christ, the way that the church is calling us into into the truly good capital G life is through the process of disciplines <laughs> and how counterintuitive that is. But in the same way that someone would participate in you know, feeding an addiction, the opposite, it seems, would be to practice a discipline. That's right. And you know, specifically, Dallas wrote very specifically on this in several of his books. But it strikes me that while we have these bodies, our pre-resurrection bodies, uh, there is a specific way that we are to go about using them. And that would be not on things that cause or further addiction, but things that bring us closer and closer to the likeness of Christ. Well, I, I, it's not only bring us closer to the likeness of Christ, it's to use our body in the most flourishing way, according to the way they were made to function. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you can actually set Christ off the table for just a minute 
although I want to bring him back in as quickly as possible. <laughs> but but if God exists and, and created us and by using whatever means, then we are here for purpose. And our bodies, there's a way they ought to be used and the way they ought not be used, not simply in the moral sense, but in the sense of for maximum flourishing. And this is true of almost any artifact that, you know, a car or a knife or whatever, that there are ways to use it so that according to its nature, it works best and longer and so on. So um, you take illicit sex outside of marriage, uh, promiscuity, uh, couples living together before they're married, uh, polygamy, uh, bestiality, which is now becoming more and more of an argument in the university that we ought to be able to allow to have sex with animals, homosexuality, LGBTQ issues. Those are all uh, using the body in an extraordinarily counterproductive way and not according to the way they were made to function. And And people who do that will not flourish like they could. Over the long run, they might get an instant uh, gratification out of it, but over the long run, they're not going to flourish the way they were made made to flourish. I am going to wrap us up here, unless you have any further thoughts you'd like to add. There's a lot of other things we can talk about, and so I will trust you, Jordan, to flag them all and bring them up in future conversations. Sounds great. I wanted to close us with the idea that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Death has been Mm. defeated, and now we get to have this eternal perspective because of what Christ has done. And I will also close us with the words, again, the great philosophy tome, The Princess Bride. Oh, of course. Death cannot stop true love. All it can (laughs) do is delay it for a while. I love Uh, it. True love. <laughs> well, God bless you guys. Yes. I'll see you, you next time. Bye, Bye JP. Bye, Stan. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcast where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.